This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, the state seemed ready to pass a public option insurance plan last year, at least until COVID-19 hit. The pandemic changed the entire picture. We saw the great job that hospitals did, the doctors did, the nurses did, all of the healthcare system. Coming up, we'll have more on what changed. And we look at vaccine hesitancy in parts of the Mountain West. Plus, we hear how Muslims in Colorado are observing Ramadan during the pandemic. That's coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. According to the latest data, about 1.9 million Coloradans are fully vaccinated, or roughly 40 percent of the eligible population. State health officials now say that vaccine supply is outpacing demand, and they've been urging residents to take advantage of thousands of unfilled vaccine appointment slots across the state. Efforts are now focusing on outreach to those who are in harder-to-reach communities and to those who are hesitant to get the vaccine. In that spirit, a team of Hispanic and Latino community groups in Fort Collins held a vaccine clinic over the weekend that was downright festive. A mariachi band serenaded patients as they got their COVID shots, volunteers served churros, and all of the clinic staff spoke Spanish. Jesus Castro is an organizer with the group Fuerza Latina. He says the event was meant to comfort people who may have felt hesitant about getting vaccinated. They can hear themselves in them. They, they're like, they felt like they could trust them. You know, and I'm working with our community, there's, we had to build that trust. The group got more than 600 vaccines administered during the clinic. Castro says they hope to host more events like it. While supply seems to no longer be an issue, reluctance to get vaccinated remains a concern, especially in the Mountain West, which is home to several states with some of the highest vaccine hesitancy rates in the country. In Wyoming's Natrona County, that's left the local health department with a surplus of vaccines and empty appointment slots. Maggie Mullen has more for KUNC. It's a Monday in Casper, Wyoming. I'm standing inside what was once a Macy's store and a shopping mall. There's lots of mirrors, the old beauty department counter, and what used to be changing rooms. But now, this is a well-oiled, pandemic-fighting machine, but with no customers. If you just are out doing your thing and think, well, I have a spare 30 minutes, I could go get my vaccine, come on down, we're happy to do it. That's Haley Bloom with the Casper Natrona County Health Department. When the agency converted this building into a COVID-19 vaccine clinic, they estimated it would be capable of vaccinating up to 1,500 people a day. We've never had more than probably 800 to 900. A typical day has been around 200 to 400. Demand has slowed down. So much so, the department had to ask the state to halt their vaccine shipments earlier in April because they were sitting on a surplus of 20,000 shots. Nonetheless, Bloom seems optimistic or at least playing it cool in order to create the kind of environment where people can be honest about their vaccine fears. So if someone comes and they're unsure, they have questions, we're happy to chat with them, send a nurse over to chat with them, whatever it takes. And, you know, if it's not the right time, no one says that you can't walk out and think about it some more and come back next week. Mark Dowell admits it's difficult to stay cool. It makes you very frustrated. You try not to get mad. Dowell is the Natrona County Health Officer and an infectious disease expert. He says it's also difficult dealing with the amount of misinformation that's discouraging people from getting the shot. You try to stay even keel so you can serve the people that have put you in the position. More than 32 percent of the population in Natrona County are thought to be vaccine hesitant, according to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. That's one of the highest percentages in the country. 
Take Connie Anthony, for example. I spoke to her outside the public library in Casper. I choose not to get vaccinated. I um, just don't have that much trust in um, government vaccines and such. Uh, I don't want anything ejected into my body that just hasn't been thoroughly researched, and so, no. All vaccines go through clinical trials to test safety and effectiveness. And long-term side effects after any vaccination are extremely rare. But that's not what worries someone like Dale Godley's. There's been just 33 new cases in Natrona County over the past two weeks, so he doesn't think getting vaccinated is necessary. I firmly believe that I'm immune to it so I wouldn't bother getting one. When it comes to vaccine hesitancy, politics may be playing a part here in Natrona County, which voted overwhelmingly to re-elect former President Donald Trump. But the health department is mostly encountering people with concerns about safety and side effects. That was the case for Casper resident Brittany Braddis. I didn't want to get the shot because... I didn't want to get sick because all these people I hear are just getting so sick. At the same time, Braddis has been really worried about getting the virus. She has severe asthma, plus she deals with the public since she and her husband own a butcher shop together. And like so many, she turned to social media to get more information. She wanted to hear from the people she already knows, so she posted on Facebook. I just wanted to know what friends of mine have gotten the shot and what happened to them. Like, how many people got sick? How many people didn't? You know what I mean? She got 135 responses, and they ran the gamut. Some people really discouraged Braddis from getting the vaccine, while others reassured her that it was the right choice to make. But then people getting in fights with each other. It's so dumb. Ultimately, the vaccine won out, partly because of what her friends working in healthcare told her, but also it was simply convenient. When she took her mom to the health department to get vaccinated, she asked the nurse if she could get one, too. So I just did it. And guess what? I got Pfizer and I was completely fine <laughs> with both shots. Braddis's experience reflects what many public health experts are saying about this point in the vaccine rollout. Most of those in our region that were willing or eager to get vaccinated have done so. It's now down to the folks that are on the fence. Shonda Schrader is a rural health expert. She says people that are hesitant don't want to hear from the government or even scientists. They want to hear from someone they trust. They need to know that it's safe and effective, and they need to be able to ask those questions in a safe space. Schrader says those one-on-one -on -one conversations will be critical for helping people make informed decisions. And when they do decide they're ready, she says a shot also needs to be at the ready. For the Mountain West News Bureau, I'm Maggie Mullen. Before the pandemic hit, it looked as though Colorado would become the second state in the nation to pass what's known as a public option health insurance plan. But lawmakers took a timeout on that plan when COVID-19 hit. Now, hopes for a public option appear to have been derailed. For more on this, we're joined by Mark Ian Haraluk, senior Colorado correspondent for Kaiser Health News. Mark Ian, thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me. For those not familiar with the public option, can you briefly describe what it is and what it would mean for individuals who want health care coverage? The public option can mean different things to different people, but in its simplest form, it is a insurance plan that instead of being designed and run by a private health insurance company, is designed and or run by the state or a public entity. 
And so it can look very similar to health insurance, but uh, it would operate more like a Medicare or a Medicaid plan. And for consumers, that's kind of good news because generally those kind of public plans are more efficient. They're, there's less uh, administrative costs. They don't spend as much money marketing their plan. And of course, they don't have to account for profits. The other big difference is that when a state sets up a public option plan, it can use the power of government to drive down the cost of, of health care. It can mandate that, that hospitals get paid lower than, uh, than a commercial carrier would pay them. Uh, both Medicare and Medicaid pay less than commercial plans. And that's one reason why a lot of healthcare providers don't like the, the public option proposal. It represents a cut in their, their payment rates. Insurance companies also kind of don't particularly like the competition because here's a plan that is designed to be lower cost than what they can offer on the market. So there are pros and cons to, to both approaches, public and private insurance, and kind of depends on who you talk to. What was the plan that lawmakers were proposing to get to a public option back in 2019? The idea was that the state would create sort of this model plan so it would design sort of the parameters of the health plan, but it would actually be offered by insurance carriers themselves. So the, the state wouldn't be running the plan. The state would just sort of design it and let insurance companies sell it in all the different counties in which they were operating. And that proposal would have required hospitals to take the payment rates that were set under that public option plan. Of course, what happened was, you know, as we all you know, remember, uh, you know, all our best laid plans of 2019 and early 2020 went to the wayside with the pandemic. So the legislature had to shut down before they were only able to pass, a, you know, a few important bills to help us deal with the pandemic. But these kind of broader health care reforms that they wanted to go through really had to wait until this year. I find it so interesting what ultimately happened with this plan, um, because during the pandemic, it became very clear that Americans need good health insurance, especially a plan that is not tied to one's job with so many people losing employment. So what happened in Colorado? The pandemic changed the entire picture. And we saw the great job that hospitals did, that doctors did, the nurses did, all of the healthcare system in, in trying to respond to, to COVID and to keep us safe and, and to, to be able to, you know, take us to the hospital, but to send us home. They really did, you know, a hero's job. So that became sort of problematic because part of the the rationale behind the public option was we were saying, look, these, these healthcare institutions, the hospitals, the health systems, even the doctors, they're really overcharging us uh, here in Colorado. There were some of the more expensive healthcare systems in the entire nation. There was a report from uh, from CDPHE showed that in 2018, hospital profits were 14% higher in Colorado than the national average. So part of the rationale for doing the public option was like, hey, these, these guys are kind of fleecing us. We really need to rein them in. Of course, that's a lot harder to do when you've just spent the last year telling us, what heroes everybody in healthcare are. Right. There was a lot of tension between the different different groups at play here. Doctors and nurses didn't necessarily feel like they were treated very well by the hospitals. 
And, you know, nobody really wants to criticize any of these players. Uh, you know, we rely on them for a very valuable service. And if they couldn't provide that, we'd really be in a pinch, as the pandemic showed. But the bottom line is, I think, across the board, and, and even the providers would admit that the cost of healthcare in Colorado is too high and something needed to be done. Last Monday, lawmakers did reach a compromise on this public option. What does that look like? What the the legislators had, had tried to, to propose this year was to say, okay, hospitals, doctors, insurance companies, you keep telling us, you know, the cost is too high. You know how to, how to cut the costs. We're calling your bluff. Why don't you take two years to recover from the pandemic? And then after two years, you guys cut healthcare costs 10% for the next two years. So, so premium health insurance premiums would go down 10% each year over two years. And if you can't do that, well, then we'll just start the public option. So there were a lot of negotiations that, you know, the insurance companies, the hospitals, the doctor groups, they, they didn't like this proposal at all. So they went into negotiations with the sponsors of the bill and tried to see if they could reach some sort of compromise. And what they said was, hey, you guys, you sponsors drop the public option part of this bill. And what we'll try and commit to is this uh, reduction of premiums over three years. So over three years, we'll try and cut costs 18%. So if we can do that, then, hey, great, everybody saves, we're making money, we're selling insurance products, the hospitals are making money, they're seeing more patients because more patients have insurance. If they can't do that, then the state would sort of oversee this this rulemaking process, this uh, justification of the payment rates so that they could figure out why it is that, that insurance companies and hospitals and doctors can't lower insurance costs and figure out what would be a fair price to charge consumers. As part of that deal, the the hospitals and the insurance company and some of the doctor groups said, if you do this, we'll remove our opposition to the bill. We're we're not going to support it. We're going to stay neutral, but we're not going to oppose it. And, you know, maybe we won't see all the television ads and, and mailers warning us about how bad the public option would be. What happens next for this particular bill? The proposal, you know, despite the deal that's been reached with the providers, uh, still has a long way to go in the legislature. It passed its first committee hearing on a party line vote. Uh, it's now going to House Appropriations Committee. Obviously, the full House would have to pass it. The Senate would have to pass it, which might be a little bit more difficult than the House. And then if it does get through, uh, I think uh, the governor would would probably sign it. But there are still a number of steps to go before this becomes a reality. Mark Ian Harluck, Senior Colorado Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. You'll find this story at our website, KUNC.org. Mark Ian, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Aaron. It's always a pleasure. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. The Muslim holy month of Ramadan is coming to an end next week. This is the second time Muslims have observed this month during the deadly COVID-19 pandemic. Last time, many mosques closed their doors to ensure the safety of their community. Muslims spent much of this month in devout prayer, most also fast from sunrise to sunset. KUNC reporter Adam Reyes spoke with Shakir Mohammed of the Islamic Center of Fort Collins and Iman Judah of the Colorado Muslim Society Masjid Abu Bakr in Denver to find out how the second COVID Ramadan has been going for their mosques. 
In many masjids, Ramadan typically involves a lot of community iftars, which is the meal that you break your fast with after sunset, extensive late-night prayers called tarawih, and other community gatherings that allow people to observe and worship together. How much of that are your masjids still able to do this Ramadan? Last year, unfortunately, we, like many mosques around the world, shut our doors. This year, however, we are incredibly blessed to welcome back community we are still social distancing. We are not having iftar dinners like we normally do. Under normal circumstances, we welcome about 400 people each night to break bread together. But this year, what we are doing is offering box dinners, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday evenings. And we encourage people to eat outside or in their cars before welcoming them into the mosque to still socially distance and pray and also to accommodate uh, not working at full capacity. We are live streaming the tarawih or the nightly Ramadan prayers so people can still honor the spirit of the month. At the Islamic Center for College, we're similarly offering uh, online services as far as viewing the prayer and viewing the sermon that we have. We also are offering five daily prayers as we would normally. There's, of course, spacing, social distancing. There's hand sanitizers throughout the center. And also we require a congregants to pray on prayer rugs or plastic sheets that we have out, which are disposed after the prayer is done. We are offering food serve. Previously, we had breakfast every night with people bringing in food from their homes, potluck style. But this year, um, we decided to have it just two times a week, Saturday, Sunday, and the food would be prepared in the Islamic Center of Fort Collins. Is there a part of Ramadan that you hold particularly dear, which you are no longer able to observe in the same way because of the coronavirus? At the Colorado Muslim Society, just like Fort Collins, we are incredibly blessed to have beautiful architecture a glass dome that looks on our minaret and the ambiance and the beautiful feeling that we get from the sound of Quranic recitation every night is one that in my mind is unmatched. And I will also say that the other thing to me that is really exclusive to Ramadan is in fact breaking our fast together. Fasting for 2 billion people in the world is not only a physical cleanse, but a spiritual cleanse. And doing that united over 30 days from sunrise to sunset really allows us to recenter our mind, body, and soul. And having the ability to recognize and honor why we do this every night and taking action, knowing that billions of people around the world do not have the privilege and luxury of reaching for food at their heart's desire. And really also having the opportunity to bring non-Muslims in to observe and celebrate and experience this spiritual month with us. So the imam in the Islamic center, he is able to connect the people with the book, with their holy book, with their faith in a way that a person might not be able to have in their home. Of course, the prayers can be made in their home, but just that connectivity to the sound, to the recitation of the imam, uh, a lot of community members miss. How has the pandemic affected your connection to and understanding of what's going on with the members of your masjid community during this holy month? Being six feet apart, wearing masks, I mean, that's another thing. You can't see someone smile at you. Uh, you try to see it in your eyes, but it's, it's, not, it's not the same thing. It's hard to get a pulse as far as, you know, how everyone's doing. 
I think it's important to actually define what a mosque is. I think traditionally in the United States, it's viewed as just as a house of worship, when in fact throughout the Muslim world, a mosque is viewed as a community center. And this is where people flock to for services, for congregation, outside of worship, for celebration and mourning, for education, and to dialogue in general, right? And so uh, the Colorado Muslim Society has often served the community in this capacity, and not just to our Muslim community, but to our greater non-Muslim community. And we're very proud of that track record from hosting open houses to community forums to hosting elected officials and creating a platform for community to engage. Are there any changes that your messages made to these holy celebrations that you think might stick after we've reached herd immunity? You know, I ask myself this question quite a bit in community in general, right? And and really starting to reevaluate and reimagine what community can look like and adopt safe practices that have really shown to be beneficial for our overall community. I think for sure we will continue to live stream prayers and make that more available for people. I think we have now perfected what that looks like over the past year, um, whereas before it was done, but maybe not as, as professionally and, and not as regularly. I think this has also opened stronger channels for our elected officials to be communicative with the mosques that they represent and make sure that all of their concerns are addressed, their questions are answered, and that we are in fact not contributing to risky behavior in general. And whether that is in the time of COVID or any pandemic or not, we wanna make sure that we are a shining example of strong community partners. There's an Arabic proverb that says that the healthy person wears a crown that only the sick person can see. So with all these things taken away from us and as they're coming back bit by bit, we hope that we can appreciate them all when we return to much normal situations. So we hope that uh, the experiences that we've learned and shared in COVID aren't forgot, but it propels us into the future to be better selves. And, and that's what the month of Ramadan directs us to be and to be better community members and be better spouses, better family members after having gone through such a great ordeal of this COVID-19. And in turn, hopefully we can bond with uh, the greater society after having pulled through all this together. That was KUNC's Adam Reyes talking about the second pandemic Ramadan with Islamic Center of Fort Collins President Shakir Muhammad and spokesperson for the Colorado Muslim Society Mosque in Denver, Iman Judah. Judah is also a statehouse representative for the 41st District. To learn a little more about how Muslims are managing during the second COVID Ramadan, Adam visited a family in Louisville. He joined them as they prepared a traditional iftar dish, the nightly fast-breaking meal, to deliver to some of their fellow Muslim community members. Breaking fast is about the community. My name is Farah Afzal. Pre-COVID iftar would be, we'd be going to the mosque. I'd pack up with a couple of families. So then it's less dishes to cook, so I'd just make a big batch of uh, meat. My name is Imani Razak. I'm 15 years old. Usually we'd go to the mosque and eat iftar there with everyone. But with COVID, we can't really do that. So we're like eating food here and bringing foods to other people for iftar and it's like really nice. Coming out uh, better than I thought it would. My name is Naeem Razak. I worry because for the two year running, we've missed that great community feeling. 
I hope we don't permanently uh, lose that. We can do Lafayette, then Broomfield, yeah. then Erie. Okay. I'm Samira Daudi. That festive connection I'm missing, but it's been replaced by more of a spiritual. One of the goals we try and have is to read all 30 chapters of the Quran this month. And it's the furthest I've gotten this month. <laughs> you know, I'll make our, our one. <laughs> Uh, my name is Saima Sharmin. My name is Austin Paul. When you can like gather and share that experience with everyone, that's the like amazing feeling. Like in Ramadan time, all of our family members will gather and sit together and have the meal together, pray for each other and like for whole world. Like we are not having that. I'm a convert. My first Ramadan was last year, so I haven't had the non-COVID experience yet, but. You know, I've kind of learned through her what, what to expect. The community aspect like this year has been incredible, even if it's been a little bit, I guess, unusual because of the isolation. Yeah, also, you know, thank you. you get the blessings. No, yeah. thank you. So. Are you going to miss any part of this in a, in a post-COVID Ramadan, you think? I will actually, to be honest, because yeah. this brings in more of the personal touch. You know, because when you're doing cooking for like 200 people or 70 people or so, like you, you don't get the like individual interaction. This is a different kind of a feeling. We do miss the community, but there's a give and take on in both. That's our show for today. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, we'll hear about a new journalism partnership that's keeping two dozen Denver-area newspapers in local hands. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. Our production team includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thank you for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.